All right. I've been waiting for this for 32 years. No, let's see. We're going to start a study of the uh, works of the Apostle John. And those are works I haven't really preached in over 30 years, believe it or not. I'm not sure why. I mean, I think I've taught some of the letters in Sunday school and stuff, but not from the pulpit. I've taught Matthew twice and Luke twice, hopefully better each time, but the Gospel of John I've never preached, and um, the letters of John I've never preached until today. So here we go. We're going to cover all of John's works on Sunday morning, except Revelation, which we're doing on Friday nights right now. And I did do Revelation one time, but other than that, it's all kind of new. So it's fun for me. I hope it's going to be informative and uplifting for you. We're going to cover all that we can here. So we're starting with 1st John. And one of the one of the most satisfying things about John as a writer is that he tells you what he's up to. Not not all of the books of the Bible are like that. Like Ecclesiastes, everybody tries to figure out what Ecclesiastes is all about. So um, it doesn't just say, but John is like really straightforward. In fact, in his gospel, the gospel of John, if you go to the very end, he actually tells you why he wrote it. John 20, 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And in 1 John, his first letter that we have, he also tells you at the end, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the gospel was written that you may believe in order to receive eternal life. This letter is written for those who do believe so that they can know that they have eternal life. Do you want to know if you have eternal life? This is a helpful book. So he's writing so we can know. We will come back to that, but now I want to just kind of back up a little bit and talk about his style of writing because it's very different. When you read John's letters, which are all near the back of the New Testament there, um, you notice that they read, they read differently than Paul and Peter. Paul and Pre Peter use very dense prose. And by dense, I mean super packed with all kinds of information, packed sentences, just crammed into these sentences. There's lots of dependent clauses and so many that sometimes you kind of lose where the, you know, if you're like reading for grammatical reasons or trying to study it, you go like, where's the main verb in this sentence, Paul? It's like, it goes on forever. Literally, most Bibles don't translate Paul exactly as he's writing because it breaks it up more, but some of his sentences are like multi-paragraphs long. I mean, they're really long. And, uh, and Peter also is really packed. And I, I think only the Holy Spirit can actually write a book that dense with, uh, how would a person just sit down there and have so many dependent clauses that are explaining all this in complex theology? And I don't know how anybody could actually do that, but, but Peter and Paul both do it. But John is not like that. You don't have to hunt for the main verb. Paul's sentences are super long. John's are very short and simple. Fourth grade kind of sentences. That's how he writes. And in fact, when you study Greek in seminary, guess what book they have you start in? They have you start in 1 John because it's, uh, it's like elementary grammar. And not only are his sentences rather simple, but his vocabulary is much simpler than a lot of the other writers. Also, in each section, he takes key words and he repeats them multiple times in different ways to let that whole concept sink in. So it just takes a few key words. He doesn't do like Paul and give you oodles of great doctrines all strung together. It's just this, this idea, this idea, 
this idea, and he has those kind of key words. Some of the key words are light and darkness, um, sin, commandment, eternal life, son or son of God, referring to Jesus. The word no is all through the book. It's not just in that purpose statement at the end there. It's all through the book. So for fun, you might want to read through 1 John this week and underline all the you know and we know uh, sections there because it, it's just uh, he does it constantly. So it's actually quite surprising all the things we should know uh, because we're Christians because he says you know and so you should know those things. But there's three words that really um, dominate the book and we're not going to get to those today but they're coming. But righteousness love, and truth. Those are the three great things you need to know about. And so his short letter is really built around those three words. So he writes simply, simple style, vocabulary simple. The content is not simple. It's not. First John is loaded with theological ideas and somehow using this really simple vocabulary and simple sentences he develops these ideas in very profound and, and impactful ways. So you come away saying, how did he teach me so much in these fourth grade sentences? I mean, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of this. But sometimes, I have to say, because his sentences are so simple and his vocabulary is simple, sometimes it's a little hard to understand everything he's trying to bring out there. There's a couple of difficult places. Most of it's very clear, I mean wonderfully clear, but I think the most challenging thing when you're interpreting or trying to understand John's writing, especially 1 John, is the fact that he says some things that, oops, I've dropped out again. He says some things that appear very black and white. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yes. As long as I'm yelling. <laughs> so there's no shades of gray in it. So remember, this is his theme, 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wants every true believer to have the full assurance of their salvation. So he describes what a true believer is. And he wants to be careful that nobody, he wants to be careful that nobody who's not born again, who doesn't truly know the Lord, who does not have Christ, he doesn't want them to be fooled into thinking that they're a Christian. Because there's always a danger, and it's a tragic danger that so many people believe so many people believe that they're fine with God when they really aren't. Oh, the danger, yeah. It is a danger to think you're fine with God and not be fine with God. That's a huge issue, especially in a culture that has a deep Christian history. It's easy just to think you're sort of part of it all. And even though Christianity is sort of on the ropes today and considered the evil people of the world, um, still, people are drawn to Jesus and they're drawn to church experiences and um, they find a lot of compassion and friendship there. But do you know Christ personally? Do you have his salvation? Do you, or do you have eternal life? Do you know that you have eternal life? And what are you basing that knowledge on? And if I said, do you know you have eternal life? And you said, well, I'm a good person. You don't have eternal life. Because you'd have, the first thing to know of is that you're not a good person. That you're a sinner before God. So you might be a nice guy. But that nice and right before God are two totally different things. You understand that. So, um, so we don't want that danger. You know, I, I, well, I prayed this prayer when I was a child, or I walked forward in this church, and, uh, or um, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm fine. Well, you can do all of those things and not be fine. Now, some of those things, and you're in. If, it depends on where your heart was and what you actually understand, right? But just going through some action uh, doesn't mean you're a, you're a Christian. So John's letter is written 
uh, in the stark contrast for that very purpose so people don't get fooled about that. So he talks about those who sin and those who are righteous. And he does that because we are either we belong to God or we don't belong to God. There's no halfway. You can't be halfway saved. So you either are or you aren't. So he talks that way a lot. And sometimes you go, wow, maybe I'm not a Christian because he's very stark in the way he divides things out. So we'll talk about that as we go. But um, So he talks about light and darkness. He talks about love and hatred and truth and the lie and those who sin and those who are righteous and all of that. So um, he has to do that because, again, we either belong to God or we don't. There's no, you can't be half born. You're either born again or you're born once. But there's no born and a half. Born once and a half. You can't, you can't be that. You have to be born or born and born again or you're just born once. So that, there's no middle ground on those things. So the letter is often set in these really stark terms. So we have to be careful as we're exegeting the text and, and, be, and look at it in context and what exactly he's trying to get at there. Finally, before we get to the text itself, you need to understand what's actually happening. So why is he writing a letter to describe what a true Christian is? Why is he doing that? Why right now? Well, the church at the end of the first century was facing a very serious threat. A cult had arisen and it was drawing off church members into this new uh, but false religious system. So it was called Gnosticism. It was the first great challenge of, against Christianity, other than being persecuted by the Jews and then later the Romans. But apart from that kind of stuff, we're talking about from within, uh, a movement arising from within to distort the gospel and redefine Jesus and carry people off into this sort of philosophical church um, idea that was not consistent at all with what the Bible teaches about the truth there. So that, that grew in the latter part of the first century when John's writing and it really became big in the second century. In fact the Apostle Paul specifically warned about through a prophecy he warned about this coming and I don't know if he was dealing with it himself at all but um, he predicts the rise of Gnosticism when he wrote to Timothy who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus and 1 Timothy 4.1 he says the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, now it's not there's two different ways. Sometimes Paul talks about the last time, the last days. That's the end of the world. This is just latter days, not the end of the world. It's talking about in later times. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and, ab and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So you already see that, those very things sort of happening. So Gnosticism at first was rather ascetic. You know, you deny yourself, uh, you deny the body, all kinds of things. And you see that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in some ways. What did they actually teach? Well, there were several main schools. They kind of grew in different ways. But the main idea, the main idea is kind of consistent with Greek philosophy, Plato, and all of that, that the, the physical world is evil. The material world is evil, which means you, your body is evil, and all of that. And the spirit is good. Spirit is good. The material world is evil. If you just get that in mind, you kind of have the core idea of Gnosticism. So how do you get saved? What does that mean? Salvation comes through secret knowledge. Gnosis is the word that means knowledge. In fact, 
our word knowledge actually comes from that. Um, so if you have this secret knowledge, secret teachings of Jesus, then you can escape your body and become pure spirit or enter the spiritual realm or whatever. Then your body becomes completely unimportant. So there were two kinds of Gnosticisms in the big picture. One was denying your body completely, being an ascetic, you know, just no pleasures at all. The other one was indulge your body any way you want because it doesn't matter. It's, it's wicked and it's, we're, get, we're leaving anyway. But guess which was more popular? <laughs> yeah, this, the, I think the first wave started, but then the second wave became very popular in the second century. So um, as, as is always the case, right? Indulge yourself. Go ahead because it's not important. Your body's not important. So, um, of course, all of this is a, a very great deception. Jesus, to them, is not a savior from sin. He's a, he's a deliverer from the body. He's, a, he, he's turning you into a, a spiritual being. He wants to liberate your imprisoned spirit, imprisoned in this body. That's what he wants to do. So that's a very big lie and a very great deception, right? And it's not true. And that's why John, over and over, says what a believer knows. He says, if you're a real believer, you know certain things. And that's what he's going to go through in his letter. So we do know. And he actually says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, teaches us. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to recognize the Gnostic issues. If you don't, you might just drift off. You know? So he's trying to make sure everybody knows the truth and is accountable to that. Now, think about this in terms of Christianity. Anyone who believes that the material world is evil and only the spirit is good is not going to accept the idea that God became a human being. That is the most horrific concept to a Gnostic mind or even a Platonic mind actually. So the second century Gnostics believe that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament is not the high God in the universe. That, the, the God that is above everything is unknowable. And he sort of burps out emanations of lesser beings over time. And somewhere down that, um, those emanations and emanations from emanations came something called the Demiurge. Now I'm telling you what Gnostics believed, okay? Demiurge just means, it sounds like a weird word, but it just means craftsman. And so somewhere there was the craftsman that created the physical world. And that's the God of the Old Testament. He's not the great God. He's, he's actually a wicked character. He's a nasty being who, uh, being somewhere down the line from all these emanations from the uh, cosmic unknowable God, he created matter and he built the world we live in. Now you can kind of see, if you're trying to just understand the world by looking at it, why that philosophy might develop. Because this is a cursed earth, right? The Bible says God cursed the earth, so there's a lot of danger in it and deadly stuff. And we grow old. I get older every day, creakier every day. Why is that happening to me? And, uh, you know, you get sick, and, and, and then you, you sin, and you do things you don't want to do, and your body's giving you all these urges you'd rather, you know, be able to dismiss sometimes. And what's going on with all that? Well, we know from the Bible what's going on with all that, but they would say the problem is that we're matter. We are physical matter. Now, when God made the world, the physical world, and he made Adam and Eve, these spirit, soul, body creatures, he declared them good, very good. They were good. Everything was fine until man fell. That's what caused it. And then God cursed the earth, and they were kicked out of the garden, and we've been having a mess ever since. But all through that time, God has offering redemption and salvation to people 
to, to, but you see how the Gnostic thing is a completely different view of all that. It's the God that's the problem that made this world, not man that fell away from God. How simple to blame him. So the demiurge is the bad guy in all of this. So I don't know if when John wrote, so John's writing in the 80s, maybe the 90s AD, old man. Um, it's hard to know if that fully developed Gnosticism was going yet, but the ideas, the core ideas were going and they were becoming very popular and infecting some of the churches. So one thing we do know that he's dealing with in this letter and that's the idea that God would not become a man and that's attacking the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith that God did become a man to pay for our sins and to make himself known. So that's huge when they denied that. So what is, who is Jesus in a Gnostic world? Well this Christ spirit who's not the high unknowable God, he's just one of the emanations from God, he found a man named Jesus and kind of came upon him. You could almost call it a possession if you would in a, in a to them a positive way. But the Christ spirit came upon him and then when Jesus was going to be crucified that spirit left him and abandoned him if you will. This man Jesus. So um, that's, so he didn't really take on flesh. He just sort of used this body of this man Jesus to communicate with people, to teach the secret knowledge that would allow you to be liberated from the physical realm. That's the idea there. So the whole idea of Christ being the creator himself, the true God who was over all, who took on flesh, that's the most horrific idea possible to a, a Gnostic person. But that's the truth. So the unknowable God would never pollute himself with a human body. That was their fundamental doctrine. The unknowable God, the true God that's out there beyond all things, he would never pollute himself by becoming a human being. So John asserts in the strongest terms he can that that is exactly what happened. God did become a human being because he knew, John knew, Jesus Christ. He'd seen him, he'd heard him, he beheld him, he touched him, and God became a real man in the flesh. So the person of Christ, the person of Jesus, are the same person. There's not a Christ and a Jesus. They're the same person. Two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, in one being, but that he's one person, one personality. So John's letter begins with this wonderful prologue, just like his gospel has a wonderful prologue, his letter does as well. And you'll remember, John, how does John's gospel begin? Most people know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, it's so good to hear you repeat that. So simple sentences, right? Undeniably clear. So we have the Word. In Greek, it's the logos, the, the rational aspect of reality. And he, he was God. The Word was God. So Christ is called the Word there. And right after that, John's Gospel asserts in the clearest terms. Now, John 1 Two, we're in the gospel right now. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. What does that mean? He created the whole world and the universe and the material world and the spiritual world and all, all of us as well. So the word, the word that was with God and was God is the creator himself. And then way down in verse 14 of John chapter 1 is the most shocking thing of all. And the Word became flesh. 
he doesn't just say became human or a man. He has to use the most gritty word he can. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. Marvelous, wonderful truth. That's what Christians believe. That's the fundamental thing Christians believe. And here in his letter, John begins with a similarly strong prologue. So let's look at that. First John 1.1. What was from the beginning and what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the logos of life. So I don't want to rush past this opening part here. So John's gospel begins in the beginning was the word so there he's saying that before time, before anything else, the word already was. He's eternal. He's God. So there he's saying that. And that is the word that became flesh, the eternal word. Here in verse 1 of 1 John, he's saying what was from the beginning. So now John's talking about an incredible event that occurred. And so his beginning is really talking about John 1.14 where he says the word became flesh. That's where he's beginning. So he's talking about that beginning. Because he says what was from the beginning. He's not talking about who. Who was from eternity. He was with God. He was God forever. In the, in the beginning. Before all things. But here he's talking about the beginning of the gospel. The coming of Christ. The word become flesh. His life and message. And probably most of all he's emphasizing his resurrection from the dead. So he opens with what. Not who. What was from the beginning. What we have heard. That is the event, and that's why John uses the expression, the word of life, to describe Jesus. Because Jesus' coming, his dying for sin, his resurrection, grants all who believe in him eternal life. So that's the, that's the wonderful message he's, that he's talking about here. So the theme of this book is to know, how do you know that you have eternal life? So John and the apostles were the primary witnesses of this event in the beginning where God became man. They were the witnesses of that event of Jesus coming as the word of life, the bringer of eternal life. So the beginning here is his ministry and his atoning death and resurrection. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I see one person nodding. Great. So, <laughs> so look at his language here in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. It's very interesting. Heard seen and then looked at or beheld. Looked at or beheld is more than just seeing. It's really, really looking. That's why it's using two words that describe looking at something. Um, he's, he's talking about that you're deeply looking. You're pondering. You're taking it all in is probably the best way to translate it uh, directly. And that's what beheld means, to take it all in. It's the same word used in John 1.14 where John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Now modern Bibles don't use beheld very much which is kind of a bummer actually. Even my, I have a New American Standard Bible that, and I got a new one and it's a, it's a 1995 version but it actually changed beheld to looked at which is really boring. I mean that is not, it doesn't mean the word became flesh and we looked at him. I mean that that sounds so dingy. It's so, so weak. It's, it's, like, it's like these people think that beheld is too hard of a word for modern people. Like Nobody uses beheld. Well, you know, some words you have to teach to people. Because it's different than saw. But look, that sounds like saw to, in our language. Anyway, that's my... Um, 
That's my little thing for today, to <laughs> dump on Bible translators. <laughs> I just can't believe they dropped that, beheld. I mean, that's like, that's like one of the great verses of all time. And we looked at him. And my Bible says that, my, my new version of the New American Standard. I was like, no, don't take a, that's, that's the way you would say it, Freddie. No, don't take away beheld. <laughs> but what he says is, we have heard, we have seen, we have beheld or looked at. And the last thing he says, and touched with our hands, right? So regarding having seen, heard and seen and beheld and touched Jesus, John is probably not referring to the whole ministry of Jesus, although that's certainly true and that's certainly possible. He, again, I think he probably has in mind the resurrection of Jesus because he's talking about him as the word of life here. So it could be his whole ministry he has in mind there and that's certainly true, but they didn't really get it until the resurrection happened, right? When the apostles really understood what it was all about was when Jesus conquered death when he rose from the dead. The resurrection brought all that they had seen and heard up until now together. We get it. Okay, that's what it's all about. Because when Jesus talked about dying and resurrecting, they were like, oh, what? what are you talking about? When it happened, they were like, oh, okay. We beheld his glory. Ah, we didn't just look at it. We beheld it. We, we got it. It, was, it captivated us. We took it all in. So it was the resurrection that brought all that they had seen and heard together so they could fully grasp what Jesus had actually accomplished. Before the resurrection, they didn't get it at all. But afterwards, they got it. He died for us. His blood was shed for us. He rose from the dead to show that God accepted his sacrifice so we could see that, that he is the source of life. It's not just some idea that he died for our sins. He conquered death. He actually did. We saw him. We touched him. So... It's a great message. So when he talks about heard and saw and beheld and touched, we should remember that that first Sunday morning when the women came to the downcast disciples hiding out in the upper room, you know, and said, we have seen him. We have seen the Lord. You remember that? So Peter and John, what do they do? They get up and they run to the tomb, right? And John's a faster runner than Peter. He's, he's, I don't think he's boasting. He's just telling you what happened. He runs faster than Peter, but he stops at the tomb and he's looking in. And then Peter goes, zoom, and Peter runs inside right away. Typical Peter, right? So they got there. Peter runs in. They saw the tomb, and they took particular note, John's gospel says, of the, the grave clothes that were laying there, especially the headpiece that was around Jesus' head because it was rolled up all nice and neat and set aside there. Like, he's very tidy, Jesus. So... <laughs> And it was at that moment that John says that he believed. He said he saw that and he believed. That's what he says. Then later in the upper room, of course, Jesus appeared to all of the disciples. And first they thought he was a ghost. That's right. Yeah, Luke chapter 24, verse 49 says, Jesus says to them, touch me. Touch me and see. Touch me and see. And he ate before them. And John and all the other apostles saw Jesus eat something. And they touched him. And so they knew that. Then later, Thomas wasn't there that time. Then later when Jesus comes to them again, Thomas is there, the doubter. I don't believe that. I won't believe it until I touch him. I touch the wounds. And then Jesus told Thomas, he said, here, put your hand in my hand. See, see where the nails were. Put your hand here in this place in my side where they thrust a spear up through my chest cavity. Put, put your hand there. Touch me. And he did. And then he believed and said what? My Lord and my God. That was his 
response to that. So indeed, it was Jesus in the flesh, right? A Gnostic would go nuts talking about this. But that's the great truth. So as we move into verse 2, again, we're reminded of John's gospel. John's gospel said the word was God and the word became flesh. So as the word, Jesus makes God known. But here John is describing Jesus as the word of life. He emphasizes Jesus as the source of eternal life. So 1 John 1, 2, the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We saw him and touched him and all of that. So life was manifested. Life appeared. Life was revealed in Jesus. He created life. He sustains life. And as far as sinners go, he's the source of eternal life. That's what John is bearing witness to. The very source of life was manifested, he says. And that's why he's writing. And I mentioned earlier, you know, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he's writing. So there can be no doubt about it. Well, that starts with the very source of eternal life, which is Christ himself, the word of life. That's why that phrase is, is used here. That phrase isn't used of Jesus in the Gospels, but he's using it here. He's calling him the word of life. And that is what he has seen, he says. That's what he's testifying to, that he had seen it. And that's what he's proclaiming. He's preaching it, right? So he is a witness, and he's telling that to his readers. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So by the late first century, there's not very many witnesses still alive, but John is one of them. And he shares what he knows to be true, so they can know also. And that's the bond that Christians actually share, this knowledge, this fellowship. He uses the word fellowship here. It's a fellowship with God himself, with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus. There's, there's this incredible union that exists when you put your faith in Christ and you're born anew by him. There's this amazing union. So John isn't making this stuff up. This, this comes right out of Jesus' own words, which John heard at the, at the Last Supper. You know, the, the Gospel of John has way more information about the Last Supper than the other Gospels do. It has long speeches that Jesus gives and also the prayer that Jesus made in John chapter 17. The whole chapter of John 17 is a prayer of Christ. What did he pray for? Well, several things, but the main thing near the end in verse 20, I'm John 17, 20, I'm going to read it for you. He prays for those who believe through the witness of the apostles. So John's talking, John is that witness and he's talking about that. So Jesus prayed, he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. There's a lot in there. But what's he talking about? He's talking about 
this fellowship. And John's talking about that fellowship in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 as well. There's a fellowship. We not only have a fellowship with each other. Look, this isn't like the fellowship of the rings. I mean, that's like human comradeship. We're on a great task together. It's, not, it's deeper than that. It's actually a fellowship that the Holy Spirit of God takes residence in all who believe. And we're fellowshipping with God and each other. That's really what it's all about. William Hendrickson, a commentator, wrote this. The oneness for which Christ makes request is more than an ethical unity. It is a oneness so intimate, so vital, so personal that it is patterned after and based on the relations which exist between the persons of the Holy Trinity. It is a oneness not only of faith, hope, and love, but of life itself. Together, believers constitute one body of which Christ is the exalted head. And he's exactly right. So there's this very intimate relationship between God and you. You say, well, I don't always feel that way. You know what? But it's real. If you are a true Christian, it's a real thing. And the Holy Spirit resides in you. And he has fellowship with the Father and the Son all the time. And you are too. And you're part of that. It runs really deep. So every believer is bonded together with every other believer by the Holy Spirit because he indwells all of us. And that's what makes us one body in Christ. So we just have to remember that. We're one body and we have to act on that and understand it. It's all based on our common life in the word of life. Jesus himself, our Lord Jesus. Well, that's how the letter begins. Great truths in three verses, much more to come. So remember his theme that he wants us to know that we have eternal life. Remember the problem, the Gnostics who claim that um, to understand Jesus better than the Christians do, but we're actually leading people astray from him, denying the great truths of the gospel. So who are the true Christians? Who are the true Christians? Well, Paul's, uh, John is going to tell us all through this letter. So that's where we're going to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this fine little book. We want to know that we have eternal life, of course. Most of all, we want to please you in all respects and understand what you have for us. Lord, we rejoice that we have a oneness with you through Christ, a fellowship with you even now, and we pray that we would delight in that and see it for all that it is and all the ways that we can be together and bless one another in him. In your name we pray, amen.